We've got Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, joining us now in the Element Well Studios. Good to see you, Aaron, the hey. Mississippi Justice Institute. How you doing? Good. Hey, Gerard. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Uh, you guys been busy tracking some cases, and uh, yeah. tell us about that, and then we want to talk about the student loans, which yeah. is, which is kind of a time bomb ticking up there sure. at the Supreme Court. For sure, yeah. I don't think uh, you and I have gotten a chance to talk about this one, but we had we filed a new case uh, late last year that's in litigation now, and it's actually about abortion in Mississippi, and it's interesting because in my conversations with folks, I've realized that very few people really realize this, but so, of course, we know, and you and I have talked a lot about it, that the Dobbs case finally held, and, you know, when it overruled Roe, held that the United States Constitution does not protect the right to an abortion. Right. And so what I was saying that a lot of people don't understand is that every state also has its own state constitution, and those state constitutions operate completely independently of the U.S. Constitution, and so they can guarantee rights that are not guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. And so we actually have a Mississippi Supreme Court opinion on the books here in Mississippi that says the Mississippi Constitution protects a right to abortion. Okay. That goes back to 1998, uh, some... some you know, pro-abortion advocates brought a case in state court to litigate that under the state constitution because they weren't able to obtain, you know, to strike down a Mississippi uh, parental consent law under the federal constitution. So they went to state court and and tried to do it there. And, and ultimately, the Mississippi Supreme Court held that the Mississippi constitution protects the right to abortion. So we are in a really weird position right now where post-Dobbs, we've enacted this trigger law that says abortion is illegal in Mississippi, but we actually still have an opinion on the books from the Mississippi Supreme Court saying that a elective abortion is a constitutional right in this state, under the state constitution. Again, not under the federal constitution. And so uh, we have brought a case on behalf of some pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists, and it's really interesting how this is, is playing out because they are under a situation where uh, uh, a lot of uh, professional medical societies that are very kind of politically charged and very uh, pro-abortion have been pushing them and pushing pro-life doctors to either provide abortions or refer, refer patients for abortions. And if they don't do that, they might get in trouble with these professional medical societies and these, uh, these board uh, certification uh, organizations. And so the problem is that under the way our state law operates, if these pro-life doctors get in trouble with those board certification organizations and those professional uh, medical societies, it could they it could trigger them getting in trouble with the state too uh, because they've lost their board certification or their hospital privileges or things like that. And so they're in a situation where. On one hand, a state law tells them abortion is illegal. On the other hand, it's arguably a constitutional right, or it really is still a constitutional right, and they might wind up getting in trouble with these professional medical societies and, and ultimately with the state. And so uh, we filed a lawsuit on behalf of them, and we're saying to the courts, and ultimately this will be decided by the Mississippi Supreme Court, we believe, that, look, this needs to be clarified. We need to... We need the courts to tell us, is this is abortion in Mississippi illegal or not? Is it is it a state constitutional right? And my belief is that uh, if and when this gets to the Mississippi Supreme Court, the Mississippi Supreme Court will, just like the U.S. Supreme Court overruled Roe, 
uh, and the Casey opinion, the Mississippi Supreme Court will overrule this case. It's, it's called the Fordyce opinion from 1998, pro-choice Mississippi versus Fordyce. And, and a big part of the reason for that is because that old case relied very heavily on the Roe case and the Casey case uh, from the U.S. Sense. Supreme Court. It looked at it, kind of followed the same path, cited it a lot, and said, we're going to do the same thing here. We think our state constitution operates the same way. And so now that those opinions from the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, again, the Mississippi Supreme Court does not have to follow those, but since it relied so heavily on them in 1998 and now they no longer are good law, I think that when this gets in front of the Mississippi Supreme Court, they'll do the same thing the U.S. Supreme Court did. But again, it's very interesting because a lot of people don't even realize that we still technically have a state constitutional right to abortion on the books here, and it really could lead to some trouble for a lot of physicians. You know, this just seems like an issue to me, Aaron, that doesn't belong in the Constitution whatsoever. Well, and I, I completely agree with you. And that's it just how, just like how the right to abortion allegedly worked its way into the U.S. Constitution, it did the same thing here. I mean, they were relying on a provision of the U.S. Constitution that says, you know, the enumeration of certain rights in this Constitution does not mean that other rights don't also exist. It's kind of an unenumerated rights provision. And so, you know, if you're going to allege, if you're going to say, that okay we're we think there's a right that's not mentioned in our state constitution uh and and the court should recognize it you need to be able to show that there is a long history and tradition in the state at the time of the ratification of that uh constitutional provision that that right was recognized by the people and by the courts and and all of that uh and you just can't do that with abortion i mean in fact abortion was criminalized in most contexts uh at the time of the ratification of our 1890 constitution and so uh, I, I think it's a very good case uh, that that you know there is not a state constitutional right to abortion. The Mississippi Supreme Court was incorrect when it decided that in 1998, just like the U.S. Supreme Court was incorrect when it decided the Roe case. It's fascinating, is it not, from a legal perspective to watch how the states are sort of bifurcating around this issue. Absolutely. I, the state of Minnesota, a couple of months ago in January, Governor Waltz there uh, signed a bill essentially uh, enshrining its statute, at least. Yeah. Uh, very, very um, accessible, uh, lax standards, I should say, around abortion, making it accessible really up to the point of birth. Yeah. All the way through the third trimester. And, uh, and of course, he's surrounded by a group of, um, of pro-choice advocates as he's just elated at signing this yeah. bill. But then we have other states, such as Mississippi, that acted to immediately uh, trigger um, statute, I guess, laws on the books after Absolutely. the Roe case that, that bans all abortion. And, and it's, what's interesting to me about that is that the pro-abortion crowd has just completely ignored that. Now, you know, the mantra leading up to the Dobbs case was, oh, they're going to outlaw abortion right. nationwide. They're going to, you know, take away your, your right to abortion across the board. And, you know, people like you and I were talking then before it happened and the day it happened and, and trying to educate people and say that's not what's happening. This is returning the power, you know, back to the people and to the states for each state to decide. And so, of course, yeah, you have some states like Mississippi that are very pro-life and are going to decide it this way and other states are going to decide it another way. But, you know, now that talking point is just kind of totally ignored now and that, uh, that you know, it just illustrates that you and I were right about that yeah, all along. Yeah, because what we've seen now are states that are more inclined to be 
pro-life have all been scrambling to either enact legislation or legislation has yep. been triggered uh, to severely restrict abortion yep. in, in the wake of the, the Roe decision. And then you got those such as Minnesota, the, the big pro-choice states, that have been going in the opposite direction, Absolutely. making abortion way more accessible. Yep. Uh, and in some cases, even funding it, funding yep. the procedure, travel to those states. Yep. You've got lots of major corporations that have uh, adjusted their policies, their their uh, benefit programs to pay for their employees who live in restricted states such as Mississippi to travel to a state where it's not restricted. Yeah, yeah. and you know one of the things that was so interesting to me about it when Dobbs came down and and in the aftermath of Dobbs, and you still hear this sometimes, and it's just I can't believe it, but you hear on the pro-abortion side people describe the Dobbs opinion as you know undemocratic, and and it's it's such a turning yeah. it on its head. It's the Roe the Roe case was, was undemocratic. undemocratic. Right. I mean, you know, the court had inserted itself into a national controversy that rightly belonged to the states and to the people, you know, for the people through their elected representatives to make this decision. It was not in the Constitution. I mean, there are things that are in the Constitution and are not up for debate. You know, right. they're not that that's how our system operates, that we wanted certain things to be you know, outside of the democratic process. Abortion is not one of them. And so it was always intended to be something for the states to decide and the people to decide. And so going back to Roe, the court very undemocratically removed that debate from the people and said, we're going to decide it. We're going to strike this compromise and end this controversy, and we, we hope everybody will just get along after this. And, and it was, if you go back, I mean, legal scholars have said this, you know, uh, since the Roe opinion. If you read it, it gave very little, you know, even impression that it was trying to actually be constitutional law. Right. It was just kind of a, we're going to make this decision for the people. And so to say that Dobbs is undemocratic has, just has it so backwards. It's the most democratic thing. It's saying, we're going to get the court out of this and let this go back to the democratic process where it always belonged. It seems to me like we're going to break here that Dobbs really was in conflict with the t- Fifth Amendment. It, you mean Roe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah. We're taking a break right here. We've got uh, Aaron Rice in the Element Well Studios. When we come back, we're going to discuss this student loan case that's before the Supreme Court. Stay with us. Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, our guest. So the student loan deal. I mean, let, let's let's level set, provide a little background. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, there's some 1.5. It is estimated 1.5 trillion dollars of outstanding student loans. That uh, there's been a pause on repayment mm-hmm. uh, for, yep. since 2020. Yep. Right. Yep. Since the pandemic. And uh, since then, of course, that it's always been kind of. Hanging around out there, that oh gosh, we're going to have to to resume these these payments, yeah. and that's not politically popular. Yeah. So the president says, "Well, this is the time to act. We've always wanted to forgive student loans. I'm just going to do this through executive order. Yeah, just just I'm just going to declare that student loans are forgiven. I think it's ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand, both, depending on whether or not you got a Pell Grant. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there's some other income tests and so forth yep. associated with that. But in general, um, it's a big old just wiping out of debt on the government balance sheet, and it's estimated to be some $500 billion, yep. half, half a trillion. A, half bucks. trillion. So some states have stepped in, right, yeah. and said, we don't think the president – and it's not so much about 
student debt, the, the idea, the concept, the merits, the, the negative aspects of forgiveness of student debt, but does the president have this sort of power? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? So, well, I mean, uh, there's a lot to unpack in this, and, and you know, some of this uh, relates to it, but you had mentioned that the president said we've always wanted to do this. So, I mean, that's important here. This was something that President Biden campaigned on before COVID even existed, you know, said he wanted to do this. And another thing that's important is that bills to do this have been put in front of Congress and failed. So, in other words, specifically during COVID to say, hey, does Congress actually want to wipe out the student debt, not not forbear it, uh, put a pause on it, but actually, you know, cancel the principle? And Congress has said no. And so, you know, that really illustrates that what's going on here is that the executive branch, when it can't, and we have seen this time and again, you and I have talked about so many cases that are like this, but when the executive branch can't get what they want through the normal political process, that's when they seize on a regulation, they dust off some old regulation that's very vague, that Congress had passed, that gives some power to some executive official, here it's the Secretary of Education, and they claim some unheralded power that's never been used in America before. For, I mean, for example, the the vaccine, you know, test or, or vaccine mandate. You yeah. know, it's the same thing. All of a sudden, OSHA had this unheralded power that nobody knew <laughs> they had. And so that's what's really the issue in this case. It, it gets to what's called the major questions doctrine that the U.S. Supreme Court has especially been building out lately. Uh, but it's been around for a long time. And and it says, look, you know, if, if, if uh, an executive... Br- agency is going to try to uh, solve some major political or economic issue, we expect that Congress would have spoken clearly if Congress wanted them to do that. Yeah. And and you can't take, again, this old, vague regulation that's never been used this way, that's been on the books for 50, 60, 80 years, and just claim this power to do it. And that's really what's going on. It's This is just like the OSHA vaccine mandate case that MJI was involved in and, and the Attorney General of Mississippi was involved in and, you know, other cases like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that that's, that's where things are. What's also interesting is that the case is being litigated primarily based on whether the states have standing to be in court to begin with and not the merits of the actual case of course that gets you know argued but the the laser focus of the you know kind of uh democratic Hmm. appointed justices on the u.s supreme court and of the solicitor general of the united states who's defending uh the the you know president biden's actions here and the secretary of education's actions here all of the argument is really about do the state can the states be in court on this? Are they being injured directly enough by this act to even be here? And it just goes to show, I mean, I think the Biden administration, they did a lot of things when they set this up that showed that they knew it was unconstitutional. They tried to set it up in a way that made it very difficult for anybody to bring a claim. For example, they only applied it to federally held loans instead of loans that are that are done by private agencies because right. they knew those people would come to court. I mean, what's the basis there? If you're really trying to if the if the if it's really designed to provide relief, why would you distinguish between the types of loans? It's all the same to the borrower. Yeah. But they did that to try to keep people from from coming into court. There were other people who would file a claim and say, for example, this is going to injure me because I already have student loan relief through some public service program that not only do I not have to pay it back, but it's exempt on my taxes. But now if I get this relief that I don't even want, it's going to affect my state taxes because it's calculated differently. So I'm actually losing losing money on this and I want to bring a lawsuit. And the Biden administration, as soon as they would bring that lawsuit, they would 
email them or, or notify the court and say, uh, we're going to treat this lawsuit as as them saying they want to opt out, which we didn't even have a way to do yesterday, but we're creating a way to opt out and we're going to consider this person <laughs> opted out of the program. But they've done all of this to try to keep anybody from getting into court. And it just goes to show that it's really a clear case to me and to a lot of folks that they don't have the authority to do this be- to begin with. And that's why they spend so much time and effort trying to keep people out of court and setting it up in a way that makes it difficult for anybody to challenge. The nation is being run by the bureaucrats in the agency yeah. spectrum. Yeah, and it's it's been that way for a while, which is, you know, I'm glad to see, and we've had this conversation, I think, but, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, especially with this majority it has, has been pushing back on that. And if we did not have the U.S. Supreme Court that we have right now, we would see a, a rampant escalation. I mean, we already have it, but a rampant escalation of the administrative state because they have been, again, seizing on all these unheralded powers, acting as if the executive can basically run the country on his own and or the executive branch can. And, and if it weren't for the U.S. Supreme Court pushing back on this, we would have seen a massive increase in administrative you know, powers over the last, especially since COVID. Well, with respect to this student loan forgiveness action, $26 million borrowers applied for the forgiveness. Sixteen million were approved, and then uh, I guess a federal court came stayed in and blocked it. it yeah, right? it's been stayed right now, and that's what's being fight, fought over at the U.S. Supreme Court. Technically, it's not on whether it's not even really on it, whether it's constitutional or not, although that plays into it. You and I have talked about this kind of thing before, too. It's about whether the stay that, uh, that the Eighth Circuit, I believe it was, has put in place should be lifted or not, and that kind of gets to who's likely to win, yeah. and so they're kind of talking about who's likely to win, but another point here is that uh, this act, and again, I talked about this you know, old act, that, you know, and it's really not, this one is not as old as a lot of these, but it's clearly not designed to do what the administration is saying it is here. And so this is called the HEROES Act, and you can tell by the name of it. This was originally passed in 2001 in the wake of 9-11, and it was designed to allow the Secretary of Education to, uh, to, to pause loans and do things like that for service members who were deploying. And the whole point was to say, we don't want them to be in a worse position yeah. financially than they were because they've been affected by war yeah. or deployment or whatever. And so they put that in place. It was extended a few times. The last time they did, they added a provision that said, you know, war or deployment or uh, national emergency. And so that's what they're seizing on here is saying, oh, well, there's a national emergency. But as you can imagine, there's there's been no effort or no ability really to tie what they're doing here to COVID or to the national emergency or that the people who they're waiving these loans for are actually affected in any way by that, that they, if they can't repay their loans, that it's somehow related to COVID. And, you know, there's just so many, so many problems with it. And beyond that, the, the act itself clearly does not authorize the Secretary of Education to just wipe out the principle of a loan. I mean, it says he can waive or modify, you know, basically any regulation or any provision of the act that sets up this student loan, these student loan payments. But there are other provisions of the law that make it clear that Congress was authorizing the Secretary of Education to actually waive principal on loans. So if you think about, like, teachers who have loans and go teach in a rural area and they can get their loan waived, or people who do public service programs can get it waived, when Congress wanted the Secretary of Education to be able to do that, it made it clear and said, you can you can wipe out a loan in these cases. It did not say that here. And right. there, we could, I could, we could just go on and on. There are so many problems with it. But again, I think the Biden administration knew that. The, Secret- the, the Department of Education said before – 
you know, Biden became the president, that the Department of Education did not have the authority to waive the principle of basically every loan that existed worldwide. Right. You know? And and then, of course, after the election and, and after you know, being unable to get this done through Congress, then all of a sudden the Department of Education discovered this unheralded power that it actually did have the ability to do this and went ahead and tried to do it. And so it's just it's just kind of a brazen, you know, executive fiat. Three Republican senators have introduced or plan to introduce a resolution to essentially thwart uh, Biden's uh, attempt here. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see where they get Cassidy, Cornyn, and I think Joni Ernst yep. of Iowa. Yep. So we'll see where that goes. It's it's fascinating, but we got to keep an eye on it. We appreciate you coming in, giving Absolutely. us an update. Aaron Rice, director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. Half an hour left in middays from the Element Well Studio. Stay with us.